0: And now our own Hoosier, homegrown Indiana, celebrity, Emily Swan. Good morning, everybody. Oh, man, we were gone for a couple of Sundays. I have to tell you, I was actually really excited to be back with you guys. It feels good to be here this morning. Uh, This month, Ken and I are are doing some just like one-off sermons, so we're preaching about some different topics that just have been sitting with us for a little while before we go into another sermon series in February. And the topic I thought that would be helpful maybe for us to approach today is the topic of war and violence and Christian approaches to those. So I've actually been thinking we we needed a sermon on this for, for some time now, and I thought, well, the events of this last week just reminded me that it might be helpful for us to have some tools at our disposal as we're engaging with some of these thoughts. So the Christian tradition, has two long-standing ethical approaches to war. The first is pacifism, and the second is something called just war theory, which we'll go into in detail in a bit. There's one newer approach, and this is an extension of pacifism, and that's called just peacemaking theory. And then we have, there's a fourth approach that I'm not going to go into very much, but it's been tried and discarded, and that is something called holy war. It's sometimes been called preventative war. And it was the it undergirded the rationale for the Crusades in the Middle Ages and for the Inquisition, and now Christians almost universally believe that was a misrepresentation of what it means to follow Jesus, even though I can see it creeping its ugly head up in certain fundamentalist circles today. So I want to note a couple of things. First, that these are really complex theories and complex ideas, and some of these have been engaged for almost 2,000 years with various people adding their own thoughts and ideas. And so going over it topically today isn't going to cover all of the, you know, like, well, what about if this or what about if that, right? This is more of an introduction to the scaffolding for how Christian ethicists think about war. And then I think that can give us a handle for how we might approach it with the kinds of questions that we can ask as citizens of a country that's nearly always at war. I saw a staggering statistic this week, and it was that 93% of the years that we have existed as a country, we have been at war with troops somewhere, either fighting against our own indigenous people or fighting overseas. And that caused me to think about my own life, and I think my entire life, we were either fighting a cold war or we've had troops in Somalia or Yugoslavia or Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere. I want to say also up front that there is space in the Christian tradition for differing views and that we should respect those who have thoughtfully considered what their conscience tells them. And I think that it can be a really delicate subject, especially for those of you maybe who have served in the armed forces. I know we have a couple of veterans who are in our congregation. Uh, Maybe you have family that do, or maybe you've been a victim of violence. And so I'm not going to tell you what to think. I might indicate some different ways that I've wrestled with the topic, but I just want you to know that you don't have to take that as, like, I feel like you need to agree with this. This is very much an open-handed... Sort of topic. So I'm going to start with Christian pacifism. And pacifism is the belief that all violence is wrong no matter what the circumstance is. And there are several streams of Christianity that hold to this posture. Um, that includes the Franciscans, who are part of the Roman Catholic tradition, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, the Brethren Churches. So if you ever see a church with the Brethren in the title, there's um, a growing subset of evangelicals who consider themselves Anabaptists. The Quakers, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the original Pentecostals, and that also includes many of the black churches that are in the stream of Martin Luther King, Jr. And when I was looking into some of the Eastern Orthodox views, there's, there's a variety of views as well. They didn't develop just war theory in quite the same way, but there's like a whole landscape of views. But that said, it's almost unanimously agreed that pacifism was the posture of the earliest Christians for almost 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So the Jewish followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, they fled to the mountains when Rome came and destroyed the city rather than fight alongside the revolters because they interpreted Jesus as instructing them to do that. And so far as we know with the written evidence that survives, Christians systematically opted out of serving in the Roman army. There's a little bit of discussion about whether that was because of the pagan rituals involved or whether it was the violence, but I think that the historical weight is leaning toward because of the violence and it was around the time that the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its official religion in the year 300 is when the church started to make more space for serving as a soldier. So a pacifist would say that the Hebrew Bible, which is what we call the Old Testament, um, it contains multiple viewpoints about how to think about war. Right? It's not univocal. There are multiple viewpoints and multiple streams and they would say that Jesus showed us how to interpret these narratives, or which side their stream that he sided with, and that he never quoted passages that favored killing, war, or national supremacy; that he only quoted passages that favor peacemaking. And pacifists would say that Jesus, just through his teachings and through his manner of death, modeled pacifism even unto death. You know, I once had a Methodist friend say. Um, He said, you know, but Jesus told his disciples to go and to buy a sword and to carry it. And that's probably the the one little sticking point um, that pacifists have have had to try to navigate in the New Testament. Uh, My Methodist friend was pulling from Luke chapter 22. And the context is this. Jesus is talking to some of his closest friends and one of the men who's probably his best friend, Peter. And he was telling Peter, look, tonight things are going to go down. This was the night of Jesus's arrest. And you're going to deny knowing me three times before tomorrow morning. And Peter, of course, was like, never, I would never deny knowing you. I'll go to prison and die before I do that. And then Jesus turns to Peter and to the others. And he says, you know, when I sent you without a purse or a bag or sandals, did you ever lack anything? And they said, no. And Jesus said to them, I'm telling you now, if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one because it's written, he was numbered with the transgressors and I tell you, this is gonna be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And the disciples said, see Lord, here's two swords. That's enough, he said. So a pacifist looks at this passage and says, Jesus isn't telling his friends to go out and literally buy a sword, but to be prepared for significant persecution, right? That starting that very night, they would be in danger. And when one of the disciples took what he said literally and said, see Lord, two swords, Jesus responded with a Greek phrase that means that's enough. And it's it's like an impatient dismissal, indicating that they had failed to grasp the point that he was making. And then later that very night, when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter actually pulled out a sword and he chopped off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. And Jesus went up to that Roman soldier and he healed the ear and he told Peter, put your sword away, no more of this. So pacifists see a coherent, nonviolent message in Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount all the way through his death, and they see the same message echoed in other writers of the New Testament. You know, of all the metaphors that are used for God in the Old Testament, the one that New Testament writers use the most and are insistent on calling Jesus is Lamb of God. Almost without exception, this is Jesus' title in the New Testament. In Romans 12, Paul writes, Don't repay anyone evil for evil. with good. Now, I have to tell you, I know this verse in and out because it was one of my mom's favorite verses to quote at me when I was a kid and I would fight with my sister. First, she would say, revenge is the Lord's. That was like a refrain over and over. But she's like, I know she did something to you, but do you want to heap burning coals on her head? Yes. Then you have to do something nice. And I was like, what? This is like the worst thing ever. Yeah, it's, it, the idea is, you know, don't get back at each other each person answers to God, and God will judge in their mercy and their time, because only God is able. So Paul reiterates Jesus's message that we should love our enemies, which I think is perhaps the hallmark of the Christian faith. I think Ken spoke last week about how loving our neighbors as ourselves is the foundation of all Christian ethics, and the biggest human challenge is how to love our neighbors and treat them ethically when they don't love us back. So loving our enemies and treating them the way we ourselves would hope to be treated is the ultimate litmus test of how we live out our faith. This doesn't mean we should be passive in the face of oppression and hatred. A pacifist would see Jesus as empowering us to do acts of nonviolent resistance. And both Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. adopted some of Jesus' tactics of doing this. Pacifism isn't meant to tell people who are oppressed, just sit down and take it but it's meant to empower people to think creatively about how to challenge power nonviolently. So a pacifist would say, as Christians, we don't fear death, and our refusal to do violence is a powerful and lasting testimony that witnesses to the nonviolent love of Jesus, and that we do more good for the gospel by being willing to lay down our weapons and by dying than by taking them up. Right, so that's, that's pacifism in a nutshell. So I've got a dry throat this morning. But a friend of mine, her name's Amy, she grew up in a strong pacifist tradition, and she grew up Mennonite, and it's like her brother and her uncle and her grandfather and her great-grandfather were all Mennonite pastors in a Mennonite community in Vancouver, and it was part of a community of people who had come over from Russia like 200 years ago because of the persecution they faced there. And so she told me that when she was a child in school, she grew up going to a Mennonite school that she was taught that if anybody ever entered your house and put a gun to your head, you get on your knees and you let them do what what they're there to do to kill you, if that's what they're there to do. And at the time that we were talking about this, she was really wrestling with this part of her tradition because she has three kids. And she was telling me, she's like, as a mom, I don't think I could ever let somebody do violence to my kids like that without fighting back. And that is completely understandable. And I think this, in a microcosm, points out that age-old tension Of how christians think morally and ethically about violence can we ever justify violence in protecting ourselves protecting vulnerable people or in throwing off oppressive forces and it's these kinds of questions um, which is how just war theory started to come about and form and this is a really old theory it came about with ambrose and augustine in the fourth century it's been expanded further from that and in fact the idea of like self-defense being a just cause for violence came with a little bit later with Thomas Aquinas in the Roman Catholic tradition. So just war theorists, by and large, would say that pacifism is the ideal, but that it might be a little naive and unrealistic of an approach. They would say that peace and peacemaking should always be the first option for Christians, but that we live in a world where peace is not always possible, and where evil sometimes runs rampant and it needs to be contained or overthrown. Right, so just war theory, it doesn't try to justify war, but it brings war under the control of some form of justice. I'm going I'm to say that again. Just war theory doesn't try to justify war, but it brings war under the control of some form of justice. Does that make sense? So in order to justify the killing that occurs in war, there must be a reason so important that it overrides the fundamental Judeo-Christian belief that killing people is wrong. And just war theory is used widely and undergirds the foundation of international law. It's used in military manuals, philosophies of violence. Once you're aware of it, you'll start to hear various presidents and leaders refer to it in different ways. It'll pop up in like panel discussions on the news. I remember um, President George H.W. Bush publicly used that theory to defend and justify the Gulf War when Kuwait was invaded. And it probably did fit the criteria of just war theory. So what just war theory invites us to do is to ask the following questions. What are just reasons for engaging in warfare? What are just ways of engaging in war? And then what are just ways of behaving afterwards? And there are eight criteria that they use Um, And every single one of them has to be met in order for a war to be considered just under this theory. So I'm going to go through these. The first one is just cause. So the the cause has to be some ethical or just cause. And this can include stopping the massacre of large numbers of people, stopping the systemic and long-term violation of human rights, It also includes self-defense of a country whose borders have been violated by an invading force because that qualifies as self-defense. The second one is just authority. And this means that the people who are enacting the war have the legal authority to do that within their country. That they have the support of their people and they have the support of allies. So some American ethicists believe that since the Constitution gives our Congress the right to declare war that wars that don't have congressional approval are actually inherently unjust. And the last time that our Congress formally declared war was actually World War II, because since that time, more power has been amassed by the president to conduct war without the blessing or the approval of Congress. Just authority assumes the will of the people declaring war is being exerted, right? So the people whose tax money is being spent, whose loved ones are serving in the war, should give some form of consent In our case, through elected representation. You know, like the Vietnam War was never, we never declared war and it did not have mass support. Just authority also includes seeking the approval of allies or international bodies. In our case today, like NATO or the UN when it's appropriate because other countries also bear the consequences of any actions that we take. So just authority assumes there's, there's some level of checks and balances on government so that they can't just act alone. The third one is it has to be a last resort. All diplomatic channels should have been exhausted. Negotiation, conflict resolution either has to have been rejected or failed. Other nonviolent means of war preventions which include things like economic sanctions must have been tried first. There has to be no other plausible way to resolve the conflict. The fourth criteria of just war theory is just intention. This is the one I think is probably the hardest to meet because it's hard to gauge. And this says that the only legitimate intention for war must be to ultimately secure peace and safety for everyone involved. That revenge is not a just or godly intention. Economic gain is not a just intention. Ideological supremacy. Conquest. Those are not just intentions. In a book called Just and Unjust Wars, Michael Walzer said something that I thought kind of captured what we're trying to see here, and that's enemy states must be treated morally as well as strategically as future partners in some kind of international order because the aim in war within the confines of the argument for justice is a more secure world that's less vulnerable to territorial expansion. Right? So I think this is where our Christian loyalty can be tested. You know, like, Is our loyalty to country? Is our loyalty to Jesus? Do we believe that saying something like the American way of life trumps you love your neighbor as yourself? You know, do we think that a war for revenge is okay? Is an oil pipeline security make it all right? Or are we doing something to help the vulnerable? And I think oftentimes that the politicians, they will sell us on the ladder, that we're there to go help the vulnerable, but it's actually probably motivated by the former, revenge, economics, and ideology. The fifth criteria is a probability of success. Right, so this means that the lives saved will outweigh the lives that are lost. And it's not just the lives that are lost. Right, in an era when our technology and our military might is such that we can obliterate entire cities, we have to weigh the loss of civilian life, of homes, of hospitals, of infrastructure, and of culture. We also weigh the psychological and emotional cost on both civilians and soldiers. Because one out of three American vets suffer from PTSD, and that is no small cost. The seventh is clear announcement. You have to clearly state your intention to make war, the conditions for avoiding it, and then time for those conditions to be met. And then the last is that war must be fought by just means. Right, so we try to engage in warfare as ethically as possible, so we do it according to international rules and law. I Actually just Googled, the UN has a whole list of war crimes on their website that you can read. We abide by the Geneva Convention, and it says things like we shouldn't, you know, kill or torture prisoners. We can't lock prisoners of war up indefinitely without a fair trial. Guantanamo would be a case where we're doing that. All nuclear war is considered inherently unjust because the cost of civilian life is so high and the environmental toll is so destructive. All civilian deaths must be unintentional and indirect. All terrorism is considered unjust because civilians are most often targeted. You can't take hostages. You can't go in and pillage and demolish buildings or areas that are not tantamount to accomplishing the overall goal, and so on, right? So it's trying to bring some sort of rule of law into the area of war. So these are the eight criteria that have to be met for just war theory. And more recently, ethicists have also started adding that there are certain specifications for how losers in war are treated. And those guidelines are about like, how peace treaties are reached and reconstruction. And I would also add, um, how veterans are treated when they get back. Do they have access to healthcare? Do they have access to um, counseling, therapy, all of those things as part of treating war in a just manner, especially because we're a country, we tend to send people from lower socioeconomic statuses, lower education, people of color more often in statistically higher ways, are going out to fight our battles. And it's not just to not treat them well when they come back. So that's, the, that's just war theory in a nutshell. And then last but not least is just peacemaking. So when I was a student at Fuller Seminary, briefly, I studied ethics under a guy named Dr. Glenn Stassen, and he was actually the architect. I didn't know this when I first took the class. He was the architect of this theory called just peacemaking, and it's a theory that is now widely used in ethics and in international peacekeeping, and it's really considered one of the three viable Christian ethics of war now. So this is this is his book. It's a lot of international relations theory, but it's worth reading if you have any interest in this. Um, just for those of you who might find it interesting, he was David Gushy's mentor. So David Gushy, who wrote the book Changing Our Minds, um, who's been a real friend to our congregation, he and Glenn Stassen were very dear friends up until Glenn's death. And what Dr. Stassen here would say is that in an era when we have things like weapons of mass destruction, and drone warfare, and terrorism, and non-state warfare, that just war theory is a little bit outdated. And that modern warfare is just so destructive and so indiscriminate that it's hard to justify that the cost um, can outweigh the benefit. And the ways that modern warfare is conducted make the criteria of just war theory a little bit more irrelevant, right? It makes it a little bit hard to evaluate who has just authority for, say, a drone strike. And so in the shadow of two world wars in Vietnam and the Cold War, he's saying we need an ethic of active war prevention, not just war justification. And I'm going to read you a little bit from his obituary in the New York Times because I I thought this captured it maybe better than I could. They quoted Dr. as saying, Christians need more than an ethic of just say no to violence. Jesus commanded transforming initiatives. Go, make peace with your brother. Go the second mile with the Roman soldier. Christians need an ethic of constructive peacemaking. And then the, the article goes on, and says, theologians have long wrestled with the Christian response to war and whether it's ever morally justified to kill. The two schools of thought that emerged, pacifism, which said it's never justified, just war theory, which we just went through, so I won't do that. Dr. Stassen advocated a third option, which was preventing wars from starting in the first place. So in this, um, he, he talks about like hard-nosed negotiating tactics in which both parties admit culpability for past deeds, take a clear-headed measure of the interests of the other side, and then sometimes make calculated unif- uh, unilateral initiatives. So I think that captures just peacemaking maybe better than I can do in a very short amount of time that we have. Um, but what it's essentially saying is that in order to achieve a more lasting peace, that we have to advocate for justice in multiple realms. And that means racial justice, economic justice, even on a global level. Um, and it's an ethic that says systemic justice is part and parcel of the gospel of Jesus, and that when we enact these kinds of justice, we prevent violence better than anything else. All right, so that, that's the three things. Um, I've got loads of resources, especially on the first two or I'm happy to talk about them if you would like to. Um, I wanted to wrap up a little bit this morning by just saying that a lot of the church, and this includes the Roman Catholic Church, in the last decades have started to move more toward a pacifist or just peacemaking theology and ethic. And it was actually just 2016 the Roman Catholic Church held a, a really large conference in Rome where they were talking about just peacemaking here to more fully develop this vision for nonviolence and for what making just peace means, and that the Roman Catholic Church is moving away from just war theory as being like their settled teaching to a more expansive call for peacemaking. And I think this is where warfare ethics is headed in the global church. But even saying that, I think there is room for questioning the viability of all three of these options. Right, there is a large piece of me, I will say personally, that leans toward just peacemaking and pacifism from a theological perspective. I think it makes a lot of sense in the light of like scapegoat theory and in how I read Jesus and Paul. But I also sometimes wonder if pacifism is a luxury that is inaccessible for the most oppressed among us. I owe my wife that thought, give her credit. Is pacifism a luxury that's inaccessible for the most oppressed? I don't know that I feel like I could tell somebody who is severely oppressed when it's justified for them to use force to throw off their oppressor. (coughs) And I'd like to think that I would have supported slave revolts in U.S. history without judgment. Like, who am I to tell someone who has been systemically abused over and over that they can't use violence to overthrow and push someone off? I believe preventing genocide is justifiable. I support people using self-defense against abusers. Right, so it's like in spite of my theological convictions, I'm not a true pacifist. And I think for most of us, including me, it's really complicated. But I think the thing that should unite us is the belief that God is a God of peace, who calls us to be peacemakers, who calls us to be active in doing this work of justice, who calls us to love our neighbors even when it's hard to do that. I think we can be united in saying that violence should be our last resort, if ever. Because more often than not, I think our intentions aren't as pure as we'd like to believe, And our concern for our fellow human is sometimes not as potent as it could be or should be. I think we should be known as not being quick on the draw, ready to assassinate, retaliate, escalate. We shouldn't be known for just putting our own interests on the table, but we should be considerate of the interests and needs of others. And we should be known as seekers of justice who are looking for the common good for everyone, right? Who are lovers of humanity and who are trying to bring good news in the midst of that. And this is where I think just peacemaking could come alongside. It should be like the thing we work toward or that we use to work toward that goal. I was thinking about it this week, and I'm like, it's just—it's really great, but just peacemaking really does take a global revolution of buy-in. And maybe that's what we're here to do. Maybe that's what Christianity actually is. It's to be a part of this global revolution of buy-in to the idea that everyone every life is valuable, everyone deserves dignity, and that we should treat others as we would hope to be treated ourselves. So I know that was a little thicker sermon. I know that's a lot of information, fewer stories, more information, but I hope that that at least gives you a little bit of a nugget to talk. I've, I've got a lot of family members who are maybe on the different side of the political spectrum than me, and it was really helpful for me to be able to, like, talk to my mom about some of the things this last week. And She was like, man, nobody ever taught me about just war theory. I don't even have like a basis. She's like, I'm just listening to people say we should go preemptively just bomb a whole bunch of people and take them out. I'm like, I can understand the rationale for that, but just from a Christian ethics standpoint, I don't know if that's, that's not the way I would approach it. And so that gave me a way to talk to her without being demeaning, but say, here are some ways that we can get at this. So I hope it's also helpful for you. So I know every week we like to do a little bit of a meditation. We sometimes either do quiet or guided meditation. And today I'm just going to ask us to do something really simple, if you're willing. And I'm, I'm going to read one verse. It's from James chapter 3. And the verse is, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. And I'm going to read that a couple of times. And you can just kind of get comfortable. Close your eyes if you want. And I want us, as, as I read these, just imagine what would it mean for us as a people to sow in peace, either in your own life or nationally. So people and babies make noise and that's fine, but let's just invite the Spirit to be speaking to our hearts today along these areas. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Jesus, I ask that you give us wisdom to know how to speak and think ethically about such things as violence. I ask that you would help make us ambassadors of peace. And this includes with even our family members and friends. Not to be known as combative, but to be known as asking wise questions and listening. I ask that you would give us tools to help offer perspective that can help within our communities to bring us to a place of just greater wisdom and love. I ask that you bless us with peace in this next week. Amen.